I think if God is dead, he laughed himself to death. Because you see, we live in Eden. Genesis has got it all wrong. We've never left the garden. Sounds really passive-aggressive, Chris. I'm not sure I totally understand what you're talking about, but it doesn't sound good. It sounds like you I'm the guy that picks up all the shit and puts it in the recycling bin. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. All right, that makes sense to me. Actually, my wife is scripting an apology for me to read on the show because she didn't think that my apology was good enough. Welcome to Lost and Found and Rewound, where one host is analytical, one is visceral, and one is magical. I'm Chris Lost. I'm uh, I, I'm found Jim. <laughs> and I'm Rick Visceral. Am I the visceral one? No. Analytical. I gave oh, you analytical. the analytical. Title. Okay. Uh, Rick rewound. You stole Rick's bit, Jim, by screwing up your name. I know. <laughs> my segment. That's my segment. <laughs> yeah, that's Rick's segment. That's bit. This is a real podcast. We've got bits. We've got segments. <laughs> Inside jokes. Mm-hmm. Inside jokes. Timeline. Timeline. Look at our Instagram page where I will post a <laughs> postage stamp sized picture of the timeline I created so you can all see that. We watched the film They Might Be Giants. Rick, would you like to give a synopsis? A wealthy former judge who believes he is Sherlock Holmes is sent by his conniving brother to an asylum to be declared incompetent. There, Holmes meets the psychiatrist Dr. Mildred Watson and recruits her on a manic search for Moriarty through the streets of Manhattan. Along the way, they encounter magic, misfits, and danger, finally ending up in a battle with reality itself. Ooh. (laughs) I have a question for you guys. So, I have the DVD of this movie that came out maybe 10 or 20 years ago, the Anchor Bay DVD. Um, and so apparently there are versions of this film without the grocery store scene at the end. Did you see it with the grocery store scene? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. But I think it's longer on the DVD mm. you have. Okay. There's like nine more minutes of grocery store or something. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Okay. Yeah, I'm interested in your review before we ask why you picked this film. You said a battle with reality at the end? Well, so first off, I think the most powerful thing about this movie is the ending. Whether or not you like the movie or not, and at the end, whether or not you feel completely ripped off by the ending or you feel like it's pretty profound. Every time I've watched it, I have a different idea of what's happening at the end. It's interesting, I listened to the director's commentary. He doesn't say anything about the end ending other than making it seem like it's obvious what the ending is, (laughs) which I find interesting. But it also makes me think that I'm right about the ending. So what I was going to say is if you haven't seen this film, I think you should watch it because talking about the ending kind of will... Well, I don't know if it'll ruin it or not. I wouldn't call it a twist ending, but I think it's worth it for the ending and not knowing. So I think there's a, a theme in there about what reality is and whether or not someone's interpretation of the world is 
correct or incorrect, whether somebody who you might consider to be mentally ill is actually mentally ill, or maybe they're seeing the world for what it is, or maybe their view of the world, even though it's completely different from your view, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. The psychiatrist character is, there's a moment at the end where you're wondering if she's completely fallen into his reality. So let's say that if you, really, I would encourage everybody to watch this film. I thought it was, you know, to play my hand, I thought it was incredible. I think it actually, my interpretation of it is probably now sounds like it's very different than Rick's interpretation of it. Ooh, that's exciting. My interpretation of the narrative is very different than Rick's. It's going to, we're going to have a Ballad of Cable Hogue situation on our hands here. I think we, we might have the same idea of what the philosophy of the film is, maybe. And I, I was so tempted to watch this movie again. I watched it Friday and I thought about watching it Saturday, Sunday, and yesterday. I just didn't get the time, but I really wanted to watch it over and over and over again. I don't think one watching does it justice, so I'm going to have to watch it again. Yeah. Uh, but Jim, before we get into the ending, why don't we get your thoughts on the film, and then I think we should dig into what we all thought the end was. Yeah, I love this movie too. It, it, I watched it years ago with Rick. We watched it. It was another band movie. I think we were band practice somewhere in Champaign watching it sometime. I saw it in the 90s. You're usually in a band practice, people. You keep talking about watching movies during band practice. You're usually supposed to practice I music. We would have done a lot better if we'd actually practiced. <laughs> but, we probably should have been like a film crew instead of a yeah. band. <laughs> Makes more sense. I'd pretty much forgotten everything but the, the ending. I do remember the ending, but it's been 20, yeah, 25 years since I saw it last time. It's an amazing movie, and it, parts of it remind me of, like, Willy Wonka, just because mm. it's the same time, the, t the, s the music, you know, all this, the orchestration, just the look of it, obviously. Well, it's not. It's a completely different movie, but fantasy and stuff, but just the music totally reminded me of Willy Wonka. It's 1971, and there's one part specifically, like, they go to the uh, hidden garden you know the secret the school and they open the door and that was just like and the music it's just like just like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory kind of <laughs> it's just because it's the exact same time you know it's 1970 71 and same probably the same people playing the music even the <laughs> same orchestra or something just the the cast too is amazing all these character actors who you all know and growing up in the 70s they were all on tv there's so many people in this movie that showed up on every television show in the 70s and grandpa monster yeah <laughs> they're like all theater people too they were in new york theater and you start looking them up and they're all legends and wonderful character actors little cameo they're not cameos they're just they're characters they're all showing up but amazing movie and sweet, yeah, it's like you said, G-rated. It's just a romantic, It's just, but it's not a typical romantic love story. It's just a sweet but heavy philosophical movie. You know, actually, as you were comparing this film to other films, I had a weird epiphany about Harvey, the film Harvey, which I wrote down, shot in 1950, uh, where I thought this film and Harvey had a very similar tact. It was, you know, a guy who lived in an altered reality. There's a, somebody who played along with him and... At the end of Harvey, if you'll remember, it acknowledges that Harvey is real. You ne you never see Harvey in the whole film, and there's this one thing that happens that indicates that he, he is real. And I was wondering, maybe the point of Harvey is that mental illness is real, and that that's what that scene was, was saying, you know, whatever you think of this person, the reality of his illness is real, and you should take it seriously. Interesting. <laughs> I think that's way over-interpreting Harvey. I'm not sure if... Uh, <laughs> someone would have had that kind of insight back in right. 1950, but I think it's a pretty interesting interpretation of that movie. I love, I love Harvey. 
And I loved this film too. I was completely on the side of George C. Scott the whole time and thought everybody else was crazy <laughs> around him, not to believe him. Yeah, that idea of having a character that kind of flips the world and you yeah, look at the world through them and realize how crazy the world is. And somebody had mentioned Harold and Maude, you know, as a similar film. Harold and Maude, in a way, is just much more normal in an odd way, right? It's from around that same time, has that same, some of those same elements. Like you said, Jim, is the, the cinematography in the era, something that people were working, working through. Personally, like nostalgic, I like these movies because it's like documentary style, like even though I, ne- I didn't grow up in New York, but went, you know, downtown Chicago when I was a kid. And it's like all the, all these street scenes in New York in 1971. It's just, that's what I remember the city looking like Chicago. And it reminded me also of uh, The Last Detail, mm. which is a few years later. That's more of my childhood. That's like 1974, or 73, but it's basically the same. It's just a gritty winter. Well, it's like these street scenes are in, they might be giants or winter too. It's kind of cold. And, but I, so I always remember going downtown early 70s as a child and that's what I picture is like this movie and the last detail Union Station there's like in the last detail they're in on the east coast in some train station and it's like that's what it looked like you know it was dirtier yeah 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 grimier yeah Yeah, I wrote the the dirty 70s Times Square with all the porno theaters in fact there was a great name for porno too much too often (laughs) was the name of I thought wow that's an awesome porn what a self-reflecting porn (laughs) name and then character actor scene on the streets of new york that sort of quintessential dirty new york times was paul benedict from the jeffersons is the pretzel salesman yeah i remember him from sesame street he was the guy who would paint numbers on things yeah so many people in this movie jack guilford yeah jack guilford did you recognize f murray abraham yeah he's the usher inside llewellyn davis and that scene with f murray abraham as kind of the folk uh, manager guy at the Gator Horn in Chicago. And, and F. Marie Abraham, he, like, Llewellyn Davis plays this beautiful song, and then F. Marie Abraham, all he says, I don't see a lot of money here. <laughs> it's an amazing moment. Like, he just, like, just so cold and cruel. He's, he's barely in the, this film, he's in the background and stuff and talking a little bit, but he's much more bouncy and animated as opposed to the darker F. Marie Abraham, the way he usually is. It's usually a lot more scary. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote a note here. I think it was based off one of the earlier clues, and I completely forgot what the reference is, but it said, once again, the telephone company. Yeah. There must have Mm -hmm. been a telephone company. Yeah. Yeah, the president's analyst had the telephone company as evil. Yeah. So, yeah, realizing that 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 was just a common theme and... Yeah, everyone hated the phone company. Which is now the internet. You know, we, <laughs> right, we made that exactly. connection to the president's analysts. Is that all comes over the phone lines. Jim, you liked the film? Did you like the ending? And what was your interpretation of the ending before we get into... I took it all as like, you know, Moriarty is death. Oh. Like his wife dies, right? Do they ever say that in the movie? It's like things I've read about it. It's like, yeah, yeah I, I can't... I remember exactly when it's... Is it ever... It's revealed. The brother, I think, tells it to the people at the hospital. Or somebody says something about ever since his wife died he it's explained at some point and then he tells the story about his wife as well in fact there was a moment where he's referring i'm going to cry talking about it right now because i cried during like it just broke out in tears and i don't know why watson comes back and he says something like she came back oh yeah and I just mm-hmm. think of like the pain. You, this guy is so emotionally disrupted that he's put himself in this fantasy world because the woman he loved never came back. Right. And then when Watson comes back and he says that line, I'm like, 
Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm putting too much weight in it, but it really it hit me pretty hard. Oh, it's a powerful, yeah, powerful moment. Yeah, and I was trying to think of like, what, yeah, what is what is this all about? And yeah, it's like kind of came off that Moriarty is death. You know, you can't see him and he's he's always there and it's inevitable. Like he's going to meet up with him. He's taken his wife away and, which he doesn't say, he doesn't say Moriarty is the cause of his wife disappearing, but well, he doesn't even accept, you know, he doesn't even know who she is. Like he says her name and stuff. It's like, it's just a name or something. And he has no connection to his past. At the end, with all of them coming together, all the characters, you know, they all, he collects them all and they're all, marching you know it's like they're they're all breaking free of their fear of living and living means dying kind of it's like marching to death basically <laughs> and and the end i think is death and they're looking in the light and not that literally they die that night it's not a literal it's just but they like find each other and they're like it's like till death do us part you know it's like hmm. symbolic marriage thing. But they're like they love each other and it's like they'll find us to get, you know, I want in the light, whatever, in the more whatever, together or something. And there's all this stuff about reality, like she finally sees what he sees. But I, I got, yeah, I got this other thing of like, to live, you have to accept death. You know, at the end, they all collect the people and they all, it's all these kind of unhappy people. And it's like, they've broken free. Like he gives the speech about, this is, we're in Eden. This is, yeah. this is it. You know, this is, you're in paradise and look around you, you know. And it's all these dirty shots of New York, <laughs> yeah. right? Like yeah. that's, that was what I thought was an amazing, I had written that down where he's like, he talks of being in Eden when the film shows the dirtiest view yeah. of New York. This is going to go into my interpretation of the ending, but the true Eden was in the school. And Adam and Eve were those two, that old couple that refused to leave at some point. So there were the old couple that wouldn't leave the garden. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how his point of like, we're in Eden. We've never left Eden, right? And I think that's him talking about the world. And again, I need to watch the film more to kind of connect these two thoughts. But I also think that those, that old couple was Adam and Eve. They never left the garden. They lived in paradise and, and they gave in to their love for one another and just... And I guess to your point, Jim, now that I'm thinking it through, they did fear life. They didn't leave because they yeah. feared what and was they, outside. They show up at the end, and then they come along with them. They're all in the group, and they're march, marching yeah. down the street. But yeah. The, yeah, and then there's another guard. Yeah, that's when they none of them follow them, and then just join Joe and Woodward and Jersey Scott go. They go to Garden, you know, go to the, the supermarket, which is Garden. Also, is another right. Garden. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah. So I, I didn't make those connections to the the garden, like the Garden of Eden, and then the garden, the shopping market, or the supermarket. Yeah, I don't. That, that's confusing. Yeah, it's very no, confused. but it's it's, <laughs> it's yeah, double. it's interesting to connect that. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like that's the new Eden, but then it's like yeah, but it's it's a false promise, right? But then he says, but he says the world is a beautiful place. Yeah. So it's kind of like those. Yeah, you get the message that oh this is the beautiful garden that the old couple created and then they didn't like what they saw in the outside world so they just stayed there and then you have the kind of classic oh this false promise the supermarket and how we're treasuring this false kind of promise that the supermarket has but then he does you know say that this is paradise and so I think it is kind of equating those things right is is that it's not that one is right and one is wrong it's that everything is paradise you can't differentiate. In the version you guys watch though the the crowd isn't at the grocery store. No. So wow, so I don't know how they how they edit the grocery store scene because in the grocery store scene in the version that I've watched, they all show up. The police come 
surround the building and, and the, the people from the uh, hospital, the asylum are there and they go into there to pick them up. And then all of a sudden, all the, the other people, the misfits come in and then there's a huge kind of battle, like a slapstick battle. And then George C. Scott grabs the microphone and starts announcing crazy sales, like, you know, two prime rib for a dollar or something. And then all of a sudden the police and the asylum workers stop fighting and arresting and capturing them and start shopping. And then they're able to sneak out. And so everybody sneaks out. And then George C. Scott and Joanne Woodward, that's how they get out of the grocery store. I saw, maybe I saw an even more edited one because it's like they just walk through the supermarket and then they go into the meat department. There's all this meat hanging yeah. and they just kind of go through and there's not, nothing happens. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, watching. it's amazing that they cut. It's like such, it's such a small amount and it's like, yeah, yeah it completely changes every it's like yeah and it's so not that's that big of a it's like a few minutes like well, yeah six minutes or something eight minutes. and so listening to the the commentary track with anthony harvey who directed it it was just like yeah they just the the movie company like he well one thing he said was this did they not read the script you know it was <laughs> like they they watched the edit of the film that he turned in and they were like this is not working this is not right we've got to cut some of this stuff out and so one part that's missing that he talked about that's not in any version i've seen is she leaves the library and then I'm trying to remember what she does after she leaves the library and then George C. Scott kind of has a breakdown apparently goes outside and falls asleep on like Wall Street or something and there's a whole scene with George C. Scott out in the city again yeah so there was a lot of issues with the film company and then I don't know if you've seen like the artwork oh I wish I had it here is like the original artwork and poster for the film um, it has that scene where he's up on the uh, street sign, you know, looking at, you know, he's looking at it with his magnifying glass, right? But it's the artwork for the film and the poster, the original poster, the Sherlock Holmes outfits airbrushed out and he's, he's just hanging on the top of a telephone pole or something. And then he's handing flowers to Joanne Woodward down below. And then there's a close-up of them. I don't think it's even Joanne Woodward. It almost looks like Deborah Kerr or something. Like the two of them staring at each other. And it looks like, and it has some kind of sappy quote about how they they found themselves, you know, or they found each other in a crazy world or something. And there's a little bit of images of all the characters, weird misfits, but they make it look like a romantic, sweet romantic film and kind of eliminated all the Sherlock Holmes stuff. In the re-releases, they've added that back in. But if you had gone to the movie theater in 1971, you would not have expected George C. Scott dressed up as Sherlock Holmes. You would have <laughs> expected some kind of just like sweet little romantic comedy. What's your interpretation of the end, Rick? What do you think happened? Oh, I think the, uh, the gangster that the brother owes money to uh, kills them. When? They, they die. No, 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 but what, uh, when? Where, where does he kill them? Oh, so you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think at the ending, I don't think they're already dead. I don't think it's a sixth sense kind of thing. And even, yeah, uh, Rose Rewound was start, I, I think had a moment where she thought that the psychiatrist, Joanne Woodward, might be a mental patient also. And I think those are kind of narrative tricks that are a little later. I think it's simpler. I think the philosophical stuff, the lack of reality and reality, those questions, they're pretty basic. There's no kind of trick going on where it's like, oh, they've been dead or they've been dead since the beginning of the film, anything like that. I don't, I don't think any of that's going on. But I, I do waffle where it's like I think the ending is just simply, yeah, she's seeing his world, right? She's gone over to the other side, but I think they die. 
<laughs> I think it's terrible. I think it's a terrible ending in a way. I think they get killed, and they're okay with it. I want to compliment what you said, and then I want to counter what you said. So yeah. when I, I at the end of the film, I wrote this down. I think the reason my wife and I are still in love is that we are continually giving ourselves over to each other's madness. Whether you think this is about mental illness or not, I think that part of the success of a long-term relationship is that you basically get into each other's shit and go with it. And I think that that was put on display. And a lot of critics interpret the end of the film as whatever you think happens to them, she eventually gives in to him and it and it's a beautiful thing for them both, which I, I like that concept, but that's what love is. It's just giving in to each other's problems, joys, misperceptions or whatever, but you just, you go for it with each other and, and it works. I do think they died in the garden. There's a scene where they run, or just George sees, in fact, I think he dies in the garden. I have no idea whether she dies. George C. Scott runs down into a very dark stairwell alone without her, and there's a gunshot, and then there's a hard cut. And the hard mm. cut is to she's cooking dinner in her place, trying to cook lobsters. And from that scene forward, the film is bizarre, right? It, it just really defies what reality really would be. The one interesting thing is she describes or they have a conversation prior to where I think he's shot. Prior to that scene, they have this conversation about them having dinner at her place. And they sort of describe this idyllic moment where he's going to come to dinner, she's going to cook for him, even though she's a terrible cook. They foreshadow that scene. And to me, from that moment forward is him dying of this gunshot wound. <laughs> Everything that he would have wanted to happen with this relationship from that moment forward, he just plays out in his mind. So instead of having your life flash, you know, having your whole life up to that point flash in front of you, he's having his whole life that he wished he had after that moment flash forward. And that the light indicates the very last moment where he no longer fears death, he gives into the light and he's taken but he has been dying that whole time. Yeah, I, I thought about that gunshot. Like, I was like, well, like, but it seemed like they get away and it's like, oh, they just kill the old couple, you know? It's like, they're the only ones, you know, it, it seems like they've they've gotten away, Joanne Woodward and George C. Scott. And yeah, and then it's definite, it's like gunshot, you know, af, but it, it seems like it's after they've escaped and it's like the only ones that are left are the, the couple. I have to watch it again, but I was pretty yeah. sure it went down the way I described it. As he runs down into that dark stairwell, there's a gunshot and a very awkward hard cut. Uh-huh. Unless it's like the same editor as Parallax View, <laughs> I would I think that that uh, that cut was probably intentional because I mean it's immediately to her apartment, and it's not like they're together. They didn't run to the apartment together. She's sitting there getting ready for a dinner. Well, they said that's that they were gonna. That was the rendezvous at seven o'clock. Yeah, they, you know, if they get separated, right. though. Yeah, there are yeah. weird cuts, and like you said, the things are obviously edited. It would be interesting to see the original. <laughs> well, so that's the right. thing is Anthony Harvey, who directed it, was the editor, was an editor um, originally, and so he edited Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, so I would think that he had some say in the way the film was edited, and so anything that happens in terms of editing would be intentional. Unless, like... Well, like he was saying, is the the film company did take over the film and cut it up. So maybe maybe some of those are artifacts of that rather than you know his his vision for the film. I actually almost side with the studio that cutting six minutes of the garden. If you 
believe my interpretation of the film is irrelevant. It's just more of the same. It's more of him sort of dying, bleeding out. Yeah. It's just bizarre. The thing they left in the grocery store is a guy is sitting at the microphone of the grocery store reading off the specials at like two in the morning or whatever time it is. The grocery store is empty. Midnight. It's midnight. Midnight, the, yeah. The, it, the it wouldn't happen. Rang. Yeah. It wouldn't happen. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I did think about that being strange at the time, a 24-hour grocery, but... There were some. It's New York City, city that never sleeps. Well, I'm not saying a 24-hour grocery. I'm saying a guy sitting there reading yeah. the specials. Like, who's he reading them to? He's just What's a crazy... his job? He's, yeah, he's the manager, whatever, he's there. And the check out the bag boy guy is... He's, there's... Sure, you're just going... That's totally believable. Yeah, I, I, I didn't have a problem <laughs> with that. I, I, yeah, you didn't spend a, a lot of time apparently, oddly enough, like at grocery stores in the middle of the night. I don't know what, like what you were doing in the 90s. I, this just shows your socialist nature versus my cat. So in a socialist economy, you pay the guy to do the announcements at midnight, whether there's people in the store yeah. or not. In a capitalist economy, you let the guy go because you, you let him go home for the night because you don't want to pay him the hours to, to do the announcements for nobody. What's interesting is my son is a bag boy. Brag. We should call you brag boy. <laughs> he spends a lot of time in, a, in an empty grocery store, you know, waiting for people to show up. But, you know, he's there right now. And, you know, once it hits around 10 o'clock, there's no one there. And it's it's re- very strange. But they, they, had recor- they have recorded announcements now. And he noticed that the recorded announcements were repeating twice. They would say the same thing twice and so he finally you know talked to the manager and said i think something's wrong with the announcements and the manager said no corporate told us to play them twice (laughs) (laughs) the scene in the movie yeah when they walk into the grocery store and they they walk by the the bag boy and he rolls his eyes at them and it's like i totally thought of graham it was like it was like that's graham right there yeah totally he's great some great acting (laughs) <laughs> and that, yeah, and the guy, the guy, the manager guy, whatever, reading the, the prices, that's incredible. That's like the most wonderful theater. It was just, yeah, beautiful scene. Yeah, maybe you're just too practical, Chris, or something. You, it's the, I mean, that's, that's what I like about that's this me. film is the kind of surrealist or absurdist part of it. I like to think, I like to think they die at the end rather than in the middle. <laughs> but it seems this all seems too realistic. I just get the yeah. idea. Well, well, that guy's so pathetic. I, I guess he is dangerous. But the guy who's gonna is he really gonna kill? I don't know. Well, yeah. That that that's the other thing I didn't get was like why is why does he know the brother? You know, like he gets the ransom. No, that's not a ransom note. Whatever, uh, a blackmail note, which is letters cut out, which is supposed to be anonymous. But he obviously knows this guy who's blackmailing yeah. him. He sees him in the car and he knows he's black. You know, why he gets this letter 20,000, you know, in this cut yeah. out magazine letters. And the only point of that is to stay anonymous. And so yeah. he, he obviously knows who's black. He's the guy who's blackmailing him, right? So yeah, I guess. Why does he Unless know? he also owes money to someone it's, else. This or guy? he's some other yeah. in between. Yeah, he's like this completely. No, but you're right. Wow. Well, he's, he's like a sucks. Uh, very low level. You know, he's in this crappy yeah. car with a guy driving. You know, he's this junky car and he's. He's nobody. He obviously knows this guy. He owes, you know, he, he's the one who's blackmailing them. Or he's yeah. maybe he's an in-between guy. That yeah, was a like little vague. But yeah, you're right. yeah, I never took him as that. Well, obviously, they, they shot him once. He, he, got, he gets grazed. Oh, yeah. That's so true. he's, right. he's, they're da- he's dangerous. But I don't know. I just, I took the whole ending by the end as just complete fantasy. I think that's a good 
point kind of is that like it's actually not important, right? The important thing is, is that she sees what he sees, right? That's the important part. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why, you know, having the ending feel slightly mysterious, I guess, right? It, in a way, it's that's not the important part. It's yeah. that moment where she kind of gives in to the there, yeah, he's reality. like they're in love, or he's like, "I'll I'll be with you forever," you know, for yeah. the rest of our lives. She says something like that. It's like, or yeah, and that's where I had that revelation about my wife and I and giving in to each other's madness. I thought like, I thought that was just very beautiful. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't I like that. I don't really care what the what the right narrative is or what the intended narrative is. I do like my ballad of Cable Hogue. <laughs> guess at it though um, and I still hold by my Ballad of Cable Hogue uh, interpretation I think those these two films are pretty similar or somewhat similar because there's a lot of bizarre st- inexplicable unrealistic or I forget what you were saying I was being too realistic or there's stuff that falls way outside of that Ballad of Cable Hogue and maybe that's just you know the filmmaker you know where David Lynch does that all the time he puts people in his films that seem completely bizarre but you know, he would argue, nope, I saw a person do exactly this thing on the street, and so I put them in my film, and to you, truth is stranger than fiction. You could argue that that's what was going on in the end of the film, was just a life can be bizarre, and you can make it as bizarre as you want. Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue, but that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco Taco joint with a special guest. We share taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're gonna love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town. Since Jim watches more, you know, arty movies, you know, and foreign movies, I think he's probably closer to right because I think if you're just swimming in the Hollywood and kind of mainstream, and I feel like I am this way too. And Is that how you describe me, swimming in the Hollywood mainstream? <laughs> but no, also me. I'm saying, yeah, that's why I said, also, I, I feel like in the same way, I don't watch as much foreign film as I used to. More abstract or, you know, films that are, yeah, more metaphorical and things like that, right? It's it's like you become kind of like, well, this is all reality. And then if something isn't seems weird and out of order, oh, it must mean that they're dead, right? <laughs> that Or they're sleeping, or they're in, you know, they're having a nightmare on Elm Street, right? You know, it's it's like where you kind of get conditioned, where it's kind of like, oh, yeah, no, this this can't be. I, I barely remember anything about this film, but he got game, 
you know, the Spike Lee movie where that ending where he throws the basketball and it lands in, in the prison. The son throws the basketball and he's on a basketball court somewhere else. I never saw it. It's, saw it's it. an amazing moment. I, I, I'm going to have to watch it the movie again just to watch this moment and what I really loved about it was is there's there's no explanation there's no way that the kid is miles away he throws the ball and the ball lands in the prison where Denzel Washington is and it's a beautiful moment but it has it's not real and it really took me out of the film and I feel like there's a lot of that missing in even you know, more sort of arty American filmmaking or, you know, the way they think about it. It's like so moored in reality that anytime you have something that doesn't make sense, there's got to be an explanation for it. What's what's the film, the one where the, he has two actresses playing the same character and it just, there's no explanation. It's it's not that, oh, oh, she's the one side of the character and she's the other side. It's It's kind of like, no it doesn't totally make sense. It's like there's two women playing the same character and you have to deal with it. And it's that kind of stuff where it's like, oh yeah, why can't you do that? <laughs> why, why not? And why, why does it have to be all explained and why does it all have to be logical in some way, even in a broken, weird science fiction or fantasy way, right? I was just looking up a film I brought up on the podcast earlier. I think it's called Relic. Michael recommended I watch it and it was... Uh, one where I was kind of poking at you, Rick, saying, yeah, Rick, you should watch it if you can stand watching a woman peel off her mother's <laughs> skin piece by piece. What? Now, it is a that film is a metaphor for a mother falling into dementia and sort of watching your person that you had a tremendous amount of respect for fall into this state and then being their caretaker. But it's played very straight. And like these bizarre moments are just saying... This is a metaphor. Deal with it. You know, this this is what's happening in this film. It's not like she doesn't then wake up in a chair and say, oh, and see her mom, you know, hear the beep of the right, the right. meter going beep. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. no, it's just, it. they just progress through it as if that was what she was going through. The reality of it was some of those bizarre and grotesque situations and, and horrifying and depressing. And you're right, there, there's not a lot of that in film nowadays. I guess you're right, I am guilty of saying if the narrative doesn't make sense, it's a strike against the film. Although in this case, I love the message of this film so much that I truly didn't give a shit whether or not it, it made any sense at all. I thought it was beautiful. I don't know, well, it's not really related to anything, but like the part, the telephone scene... Again, back to the telephone company and the operators. Again, with the time, I'm connecting it to everything, movies of the same year or whatever, but that was totally like Catch-22. The girl is trying to find her boyfriend who's taking sleeping pills, and it's like, that's just a Catch-22 situation. She's like, oh, I can't I can't tell you that over the telephone, It's but I'm here in person. You can tell me now, but I, well, I can't talk to you in person. You have to talk to me on the phone. Where's the phone? And the phone's over there, and... That's totally, that could have been in Catch-22, and <laughs> which is, yeah, a year or two before, but that yeah. th that was great. Weird, bizarre aside. I don't know, I guess it's just mad, yeah, madness. Modern life, you know, crazy, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> that, that yeah, was... the systems, the systems that we're living within, and they, yeah, they have all these contradictory things and the rules, and it's like you can't just even do the basic yeah. decent thing because, oh, you'll lose your job or you're crazy. Yeah. Right. And it starts, yeah, it's it starts very, yeah, this movie is great because it's funny. Yeah, it's very funny. There's a lot of really funny stuff, but it's heavy too. Yeah, and that, that scene ends, you know, it's like she's operators crying and it's like, I can't take this anymore. And 
again, I was listening to the commentary. Just I didn't watch all of it. I watched it some of it just before we started. And the woman Grace in that scene, the the director said, "Oh yeah, she was never in anything else." But I looked her up, and she's the main character in Panic in Needle Park. Hmm. That's the same actress. It's like, oh my god. It's like right around the same time, and I never realized that. I like the cop, you know, the cop who's the, the guy, the char- another character actor who was in every 70s show, and he shows up when they're, actually just after the, they leave the phone company, and, you know, he goes like, Mr. Rathbone, it's an honor, sir. You know, he thinks he's yeah. Basil Rathbone, the actor <laughs> yeah, who played. That's amazing. Sherlock Holmes, that's really funny. I just love it, the way he delivers. He's like, Mr. Rathbone, sir. You know, because <laughs> those, like, yeah, I that's know like, who you are. That's, yeah. So, can you tell me what Brad Pitt, George C. Scott, Cheryl Crow, and John Hamm all have in common? Who's John Hamill? John Hamm. John Hamm. Oh, John Hamm. You just threw together a bunch of names, and you're trying to trying to see if there's something we can come. Well, up they're with. all attractive. For one, you had mentioned he's got game, and I thought about Denzel Washington, so I thought about attractive <laughs> right. people. But that they all attended the same university, University of Missouri. Wow. wow. George C. Scott, huh? George C. Scott. Wow. Is he originally from Missouri, or is he from somewhere else? No, he was not. That was I was surprised he went to MU. I forgot where he's from. I saw a little snippet. His dad was like a Buick executive, so maybe he was from Detroit. No, mm. I don't know. But I just saw something, and I just half remembered. It's like his mother died early and was raised by his father, was a Buick executive. And but I don't, who knows where he? I don't know. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> Should this film be lost? I I argue it is lost. When I Google it, you have to go to lengths to get the movie, not the band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't think it should be lost. What are your what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I recommended it. I love the movie. I worry a little bit that it's starting to get long in the tooth. You know, might not resonate with the younger people. But we probably don't have any younger people listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, so definitely, definitely, it should be found. Should be found. So you would recommend it to a student or coworker. Jim, would you rec- when you were in the grocery store, would you turn to somebody and say, if, as they stand in front of the red box, you would tap them on the shoulder and say, you should watch They Might Be Giants? Uh, absolutely, yes. Or just, it's, yeah, it's great. It's, it's a G movie. There's nothing crazy. It's just, it's uh, sweet, but it's not sweet. It's not just a sweet movie. It's like heavy. It's heavy. It's a heavy, sweet yeah. movie and romantic and... But just, yeah, it's not, not exactly happy. Who knows what it, you know, we, like this conversation, it's, it's very up in the air. Yeah, it's beautiful. After you tap that person on the shoulder in red box and the police are carting you away, would you be <laughs> telling the police to watch the movie? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. You know, They Might Be Giants is a reference to Don Quixote, and the quote people pull from the film is, of course he carried it a bit too far. He thought that every windmill was a giant. That's insane. But thinking that they might be, well, all the best minds used to think the world was flat, but what if it isn't? It might be round, and bread mold might be medicine. If we never looked at things and thought of what they might be, why, we'd all still be out there in the tall grass with the apes. Yeah, it's profound stuff. Pretty strong meat there. Pretty strong what? Pretty strong meat there. It's a Monty Python thing. It actually might even be in a, a movie review, right? Does he? he said, it's, it's Sam Peckinpah. Is it the Sam Peckinpah? Pretty Peck strong Paw meat thing? there from Sam, Mr. Sam Peckinpah. 
It's all the it's the <laughs> episode where yeah, they're all just like at the end, yeah, Eric I, it's Eric Idle and he's like sniffing like he's doing the movie review and then he gets machine gunned at the end. It's way more violent than any Sam Peckinpah movie. The the Monty Python episode. Yeah, it's crazy. He just gets yeah. machine gunned in slow motion. And he's I laughing. Remember. It's like subtitles. He's like, tee hee hee. He's like, ah, ah. And he's just like convulsing and getting shot. It was on TV in yeah. 1969, whatever. That's why we need regulations. That's why we need governance. Can't let this, you know, Benny Hill, this stuff can't stand <laughs> on television. I always remember when uh, Johnny Carson, they did put the Tonight Show on in England. They tried it out in England, and then he just started doing Benny Hill jokes, and that was one thing that just kind of killed it where it was like he thinks that's all we watch is Benny Hill <laughs> you know it was like that was how he was gonna reach out to the UK audience well they watched Benny Hill the young ones <laughs> Monty Python and absolutely fabulous right <laughs> that's is that it the, the only shows that made it to America <laughs> Doctor Who <laughs> oh Doctor Who I forgot that one too couple other character actors M. Emmett Walsh yeah. Can't forget him. Yeah. He was there. Yeah. And uh, Rue McClanahan from uh, Golden Girls. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The crazy woman in the movie theater, Sudi Bond. I just looked her up and she was like the same age as Joanne Woodward almost and Jersey Scott. She looks so old and she's dressed old too, I think. She's like a bag lady. Yeah. Oh, she's in Cold Turkey. It's about the town that gets offered smoking like a million with... dollars to quit smoking okay. for a month. <laughs> And the only other thing I had was the light of Moriarty looked a little bit like the same color of the light that comes out of the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. I know that Tarantino references, or the Ark, Ark of the Covenant, it's that, what is it? The what's it? But that's actually from the uh, the Mike Hammer movie from the 50s. There's a radioactive briefcase with radioactive stuff in it. It's called the What's It. They literally open it up and it, it glows. But then the whole building blows up. What movie is it? It's the movie that Cloris Leachman is in at the beginning. With a clue like that, Rick, I don't know how we can't get that name <laughs> of that film. Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah. That's what Quentin Tarantino was ripping off. A common theme on this show is me obsessing about cinematography. Is like I, I felt like the the cinematography actually seemed a little crappy. The New York early '70s documentary style. I felt like it really clashed with it. And I looked it up, and it's the same guy who did Dog Day Afternoon, which is you know kind of a classic because it is that gritty New York you know television zoom lens filmmaking. When I was listening to the director's commentary, they the budget was so low they they didn't do any sets for this film. It was all real locations. Hmm. Yeah, the office at the beginning was actually like the film company's office in New York or something <laughs> like that. Like they they were shooting stuff in, yeah, just doing pickup shots all over the place, all over New York. That to me redeemed it a little bit, where it was like, holy cow, at that period of time to shoot everything on location rather than to use sets. Yeah, you know, it was a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, I thought it was great i love that <laughs> i noticed like in the like the reading room stuff is out of focus you know there's some kind of weird yeah. fuzzy it definitely looked like kind of cool but like part of it was like oh george c scott's kind of out of focus and <laughs> it was like yeah, i probably just didn't have time or money to reshoot yeah. it i was talking yeah. about kess my favorite movie and that's like the same period yeah it's like better but still it's the same thing it's just totally available locations and the sherlock holmes thing i want it to be a little more 
classic looking, right? Whereas like with Kess, that kind of on-location available light look works really well. Completely different yeah. type of movie. It's like Kess is like a documentary almost. But there are shots in They Might Be Giants that are amazing, right? Like the ending shot's really amazing and him and his, with the chemistry set and all that all yeah. that kind of stuff. There's a lot of certain moments where it's, yeah, it just looks great, but yeah. And then the city, yeah, the street shots are great. There were several scenes on the street in the city where people were looking at them as if they were shooting on the street like a news crew. And I was like, is this, is that supposed to happen? Why is everybody look, like it looks yeah. like, why do you have people are the extras? Why are they just staring at the camera? <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's what and he were said. real people. Yeah. yeah, it was real. Like they did not do any extras. They didn't close off any streets. They just walked around and shot stuff. Which works so. because... He's crazy. He's like a madman. You know, it's this guy dressed up as Sherlock Holmes. So even if they're kind of looking at the camera, they're, they're not. They're looking at the actors. And it's like, it's totally believable because it's just all there. These, who's that crazy guy on the street, you know? It didn't take me out of it. I was just noticing, oh, yeah, it's, clearly yeah. they're just shooting on the street. Yeah. There's yeah. These, aren't at, these aren't extras. And I do think the Garden of Eden or the school was beautifully shot and I did get that I didn't realize it till you said it Jim but I did get that Willy Wonka feeling about all the fruit and stuff that they had that they were growing there and yeah it was just the music huge just like the open the door the bring it was like the the flower the orchestral music it was exactly like some part of Willy Wonka James Goldman who wrote it is the brother of William Goldman the famous screenwriter you know who wrote Butch Cassidy and Sundance oh. Kid and Marathon Man and so the sequel to Marathon Man was Brothers, you know, about the two brothers in uh, in Marathon Man. Roy Scheider is Dustin Hoffman's brother in Marathon mm. Man. And then it, I would have loved to have known more about that dynamic with that family, what that was all about. <laughs> well, he was a playwright who hated the way the play was executed. And he basically shut the play down because they were misinterpreting the script. And then I think he wrote the screenplay. I guess it was shot maybe more true to the intention of the play. It'd be interesting to see how they did this as a play, as a yeah. stage play. I mean, there's a lot of change of scenery. Maybe that just doesn't, it all takes place in the asylum. I don't, I don't know. But, um, yeah, and even trying to imagine like what it would have been like in 1961 versus 1971 too, you know, so it feels very much of, of that era, like we were talking about, the late 60s, early 70s era. And then to realize that the play was written in 61 is like how much of that carries over. All right. Great meeting with you, gentlemen. Yep. We'll uh, talk to you in a month. <laughs> Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. Lotus Pod.